Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. We've got the whole crew here today with Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Brian Lubers. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you listening as well. And we appreciate it. And we're going to get out very soon the entries for the pictures that people sent in. And we're happy to have those. And we'll be willing to share some of those as we get our winners very, very soon now. And also, if you have questions, comments, anything you'd like us to talk about on the show, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu, because on today's show, we're going to talk about a couple questions that come up pretty frequently. One, how do we measure or monitor stress in cattle? Dustin's going to chime in on some of the cow herd changes we're seeing with cattle drought. And also, we're going to get into grazing monitoring and talk a little bit about what to do after you treat a calf and he doesn't respond? Maybe when should we treat him again? Before we get into that, we're getting back into that time of year. It was about this time last year, Bob, that I was getting ready to go to my son's high school football game. It's 5.30. I'm rushing around. We're last minute, and we get a call from the sheriff, and he says, I think one of your cows is out. That's the last thing you want. So I, I run out there. We go out to look, and... Boy, never been so happy to see another tag that wasn't ours. <laughs> it was from our neighbors. So I was able to say, hey, I think it's, it's this guy's. <laughs> I got to go. And he goes, all right, see. <laughs> so it was good. And, and one of the things that that is frustrating when cows get out, but that does happen at sometimes inconvenient times. Oh, they cows know. They know the, the absolute worst time. So I, I think my, my sister... Uh, has one of the best cows out stories that anybody could have because we had cows out the morning of her wedding. And so we had the class, I mean, maybe classic, this happens to everyone, I'm sure. So we had the wedding party out helping us get cows out of the cornfield uh, the morning that, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, kind of wrapping up, heading towards the church, getting things going, but no, we're out chasing cows. Some people and just play golf or do another event, but that no. was your event that you decided to schedule for your sister? It's kind of a bonding thing. You know, it's like we're, <laughs> we're telling the groomsmen, no, 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 move over there. You know, so but we, at least we had a good supply of labor right when we needed it. And they were, and, and how could they, they couldn't say no. I mean, that would be kind of rude. Yeah. The moral of the gathering is always have your cows get out when you got a bunch of people visiting. Yeah, perfect. That's your, that's your moral. Yeah, that's it. And and it makes the wedding even more memorable. But may have added some stress to the bride. Oh, the bride, uh, the bride's mother was not happy. Let, let me just put it that way. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the bride wasn't very happy either. So, so I, I bet you're right. And sometimes that's easy to that kind of stress is easy to detect, which leads us into our first topic, because when we talk about stress and stress in general, it's we know what it feels like, but sometimes it's hard to see on the outside, even if it's another person. And you have to you have to work with them, monitor them closely. There's been a fair bit of research that's been done, and, and I'll lump together a couple things: stress and pain in cattle. They're two different things. But there's been a fair bit of research done looking at how we can monitor those. Some some by our own Dr. Katsia and Dr. Kleinhans here at K-State. Others, there was an article that came out recently by a Dr. Clapp from Canada who was looking at variability in heart rate to measure stress. So because it's so hard to measure, I want to ask you guys, and Brian, I'm going to ask you, 
maybe maybe just give me a definition. What's your definition of stress, or what's actually going on in the animal when when we say they're stressed? Yeah, I I think you know when we talk about stress, you know we're talking about you know job was stressful today. I've, my cows got out on the day of my wedding, stressful, right? We're talking about this emotional kind of stress. And when we talk about cattle, we, you know, obviously they, they don't talk, so we don't know how they emotionally feel or, or don't feel. Um, when we talk about stress, we're generally talking about, you know, kind of a physiologic response. So the, the body uh, is, is responding to some sort of, uh, event or uh, incident, so to speak. And it's, it's not necessarily emotional, but it's all the things physiologically that a body does when something changes. And so you mentioned the, the heart rate variability. Um, there's a, a whole cascade of hormones that decide to kick in when, when an animal experiences stress. So that's what we're talking about. And, so, and same way. And there's maybe a difference because I use the example of I get a phone call, the cows are out and immediately I, I feel anxious, right? I, I feel anxious. My heart rate's going faster. I'm going, I got to get the, how am I going to get this done? Which is different than here recently. <laughs> I've had some deadlines that I knew were coming, right? It's not a surprise. I've known for a month or two and I have been working along the way, but because they're kind of big, it's more of a long-term stress. Do, do cattle have that kind of differentiation, Bob? Yeah. One of the things that, you know, kind of what both of those situations, it, it goes back to maybe in, in your high school biology class or something, they talk about fight or flight, meaning that, you know, if an animal or human is confronted with something that might be dangerous, they, they, they have a, a surge of hormones and, and divert some energy so the muscles can react so that they could either fight or run so that they can survive basically. And so we think about those as, you know, kind of like your phone call of the cows are out and, you know, so your heart rate goes up, some cortisol gets released and you're ready to take action right now. And the way I've been taught and the way I kind of understand it from reading articles is an occasional spike in those kinds of stressors isn't really harmful to the body. In fact, like I said, a lot of times it, it helps you avoid a problem. And it's short term. And it's short term. And that and that's what the difference is between something that's not harmful and harmful from a stress standpoint. It appears that kind of that chronic. So if you if you maintain yourself under stress over time. So some of the things that we might see with with cattle or livestock are, you know, housing that is uncomfortable, footing that's uncomfortable, um, nutrition that's that's not okay. Um, so those become not just a brief burst of energy to escape something, but there, I'm just kind of living through something that is not good. Um, one, one of the questions that students ask me sometime, we talk about how stress can cause a decrease in fertility of bulls. And so the students will ask, well, a lot of times it appears that it causes stress to bring a bull into a squeeze chute to do a breeding soundness exam. Does that reduce his fertility? And, and the answer is really no, because that's kind of one of those short-term stresses that doesn't really reduce fertility. It's if he is under a long-term stress again, you know, so the housing is really uncomfortable. He's in deep mud or something like that, that, that causes long-term stress. That's when we can see a reduced fertility, but just kind of getting excited because we brought you into a squeeze chute. That's not the, that that's kind of a stress that animals can handle is the short-term stress and longer-term stress 
And, and I think it's interesting that you brought in earlier pain. And yeah, those are two different things, but there's some overlap there because one of the things that can kind of cause long-term stress is, is kind of chronic pain. So it maybe is not, you know, really severe pain, but it's kind of just nagging chronic pain. And, and so then it becomes difficult. Well, how do you, what do you separate out the effects of stress and the effect of pain? Because they seem to tightly, they can be uh, connected together. But you're, but you're not saying that short-term stress is okay. In your bull example, it was okay, but short-term stress can still cause problems. And, and I'll give an example and maybe ask you guys opinion. So if we're working cattle and we're going through, we're vaccinating, if they're more excited, if they're more stressed, both in the gathering, processing, moving through the shoot process, is, is that going to hamper my immune response? Because one of the hormones that Brian said was released was cortisol, which is immunosuppressive, which will decrease the immune system's response. So should I not worry about short-term stress because it, it goes by really fast? Well, I'll, I'll throw in real quick and then Brian can fix whatever I say is, in that case, it's no, no, don't worry about it. But I would say that chronic stress is worse than short-term stress. So short-term stress in that kind of an immune response is, is not helpful. So I want to handle cattle quietly, but it would be even worse if they were under long-term stress. I agree. I think chronic stress is worse than short-term, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to it. And we've talked on the podcast before about, you know, um, handling procedures that minimize stress. So you know, and those are, those are relatively easy to implement, you know, and it's just, it's really more of a person thing than, you know, a facilities or anything. If you, you, so you can do some things even to mitigate that short-term stress. And you mentioned, you know, vaccine and pain, you know, if you think of even maybe a little more intense short-term pain, like dehorning or something like that, you know, there's evidence out there that mitigating that does have some benefits to the animal, um, from a, a physiologically, but even from a performance perspective. Absolutely. And we, we can talk more about that because I, it, an interesting topic and one of the real challenges, we don't have an easy way to measure it. So if we have animals that are, are lame, for example, or we can see that and we can address it, uh, stress is harder. And as Bob mentioned, look for sources of if there's chronic stress and that can be uh, water, feed, nutrition, environment, housing, and try to avoid as many of those as you can. And we know that that can, that can make a difference long-term. I did also want to talk about, and Dustin, we've seen a lot of news articles recently talking about the drought, the dry weather, many regions of the country. And in fact, it's, I don't know if it's unique or not, but at this time of year, we've heard a lot about uh, there's, there's flooding and areas of the eastern part of the U.S. That have, that have been hit by weather, and then the western part of the U.S. very dry. And some of the cow herd is kind of selling off in response to that. If I'm a cow-calf producer, and let me frame it for you, I'm a cow-calf producer, and I'm in an area where I don't have to sell cows because of the drought, uh, but I'm thinking about should I keep my heifers or not? Because heifer calves might be a good price this fall, but if I keep them, their calves might be a better price in the future. How do I sort through that? That's a great question, Brad. So, you know, and what the numbers are all telling, I mean, just, just take a step back for a second. Uh, you know, looked at the drought monitor map. Primarily, it's, for the most part, it's, it's just like west of the Mississippi, excluding Texas, maybe Kansas, Oklahoma, Missouri. 
uh, Arkansas. Everything's been in a drought. It's been maybe even back into last year. So the numbers suggest over the last couple of years, we've been having contraction anyway in the cow herd. If you take a look at uh, all the reports coming out, it's their best guess anywhere from maybe a half percent to 2% increase uh, in li liquidation in the cow herd and retaining and heifers primarily maybe because of this drought. So then coming back to your question, what's, uh, you know, for those that maybe are uh, in a better position from a, a drought perspective, you know, that have the forages, should we keep, uh, or should they, should they keep those calves, retain those heifers, or maybe purchase more heifers uh, going forward? That, that's a really difficult question, I guess. Uh, every operation is going to be a little different, but some things that they want to think about, you know, what, what are the costs? You know, feed costs are up. Uh, some of the grain prices are up. So definitely want to keep, there's going to be an upward pressure on some of their input prices, maybe possibly for those calves, if they're going to purchase some and the feed expense or, or the, the grains. So those are definitely something they want to think about. Uh, looking forward though to, you know, if I get a calf, what's the price going to be? Uh, right now, there's a pretty strong demand for beef here, not only U.S., but globally. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. At the end of the day, you know, I don't know that I have a crystal ball to say, yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. Uh, but you do definitely need to keep an eye out for those uh, upward, upward increase, uh, upward pressure in uh, the, the costs of this. I don't think I answered your question at all. I just kind of skated around it. Uh, yeah, so what, so that, and it makes it hard because there's a lot of factors that influence this decision and, and you don't know all of them at the time, but I still have to make a decision with imperfect information. And so if you, if you look at, I think part of it plays into, and we'll talk in a minute about grazing, but Part of it plays into our stocking density where we are now, right, guys? I mean, if we're, if I'm a little bit, because it's rare that I am exactly perfectly stocked on my operation. I may be a little bit overstocked or a little bit understocked. Bob or Philip, would that influence your decision on whether you want to keep peppers? Well, I think definitely from what Dustin was saying, if I'm overstocked, then I'm going to have to spend more money on feed to get those heifer calves through the winter and things like that. And if feed prices are going up, then my cost of a bred heifer is going to be higher than, than usual. Some of the things that I think you start looking at is, you know, because we can uh, stretch our forage, um, our base forage with some purchased feeds. So you really start looking at, well, the you know, the, the cost of any purchased feeds to kind of add some extra animals or stretch our forage uh, base versus the value of bringing those animals on. And, and the, the challenge with that, again, that's, that's easy to say, but there, there involves kind of some crystal ball things. Because when you save heifers back, your, their, their peak income is, is several years down the road when they're a four, five, six-year-old cow. That's kind of when their peak income. So I'm kind of trying to look into the future and use my best judgment of is that worth maybe basically having a little bit higher priced replacement entering the herd because of the feed I have to spend or the, the, what I have to purchase her for, but that's going to be paid for by some additional income in four five, six years. Um, and, and the people that do that best, and, and again, no one guesses perfectly all the time, 
But I, I see people that are better at kind of looking forward in time. And, and again, they're never 100% right. But it's really making that judgment. Is it worth kind of taking the risk and investing a little bit more now to get more benefit later? And I think you really have to have a good handle on your costs today. Because that's the one thing I can kind of know is my cost today. And then I'm basing my decision on whether to pull the trigger or not on, on what I look forward in the future. And the psychology you described is exactly what drives the cattle cycle, right? Some folks, once the price gets good enough, we start to save more. And then once the price drops off, we, we may change the herd size a little bit. It, it may not all be at the operational level. It may be individual operations going in and out of the industry. But some of it is the flux of the herd size within the operations. And some of that, I, I mentioned stocking density, and that ties right into our next topic. And as we get to this time of year, uh, we're often thinking about, we've talked about stretching that forage. And we said, well, do we have enough available or not? So Philip, I want to start with you, but I want to get everybody to kind of weigh in on this one. Uh, how do I know what's actually out there in my pasture. I know we've said before, you can't drive by, you gotta walk out, you gotta look around, but I like to take some objective measurements. And, I, and I've seen uh, some of the grazing sticks, some of the other stuff. What's the best way for me to measure the biomass that's out there in my pasture? Well, <clears throat> Brad, that, that's a question that scientists have been trying to figure out for, I don't know, decades here is how to actually measure the amount of biomass in pasture and we still can't do it right or well um, and so I think there's a there's a, a couple of of things is number one is just the the factor of time you know how, how was it or what did it look like this time last year you know and and the year before that and what did you know what did it look like a month ago versus now um, and and so a lot of the, being able to accurately judge, you know, how much grass is out there and how much grazing, how many grazing days I've got left is to monitor changes over time and keep good records um, of, you know, from year to year, kind of from a, a I'll say a weather perspective, um, you know, if it's a drier year versus a wetter year and things like that. And and keeping those records of how it changes over time. Um, you can use some things like a grazing stick and, and things like that to give you maybe an objective measure, um, but the accuracy of that really depends on you, uh, where you place the stick and how many different places you put the stick and, and things like that. Um, and so- So, so tell me more, because. I like the idea of the grazing stick. I like the idea of getting an accurate measure, but there, there's two things, not just, and, and I get the part about, okay, well, don't put it by the water or the gate that they come in, right? That's grazed down. So you go take some samples from the pasture, but when I put it down in the pasture and try to measure, well, there's grass of all different heights. Right, so how do I know, am, am I measuring kind of on average and some leaves are bigger than others? How do I sort that? that that's where the, the variability comes in. And like I said, even as scientists, we don't do that very well in that you're, you're trying to get a, an average value, but there's a lot of variability across that pasture because cattle don't graze the, the forage that's out there evenly. And so you've got to try to take 
a lot of measurements. And from a scientific perspective, you know, we we talk about doing, you know, maybe 10 or, or so measurements or more per acre um, to, to try to get an accurate measure of, of the forage biomass that's out there. And so, so, you know, so what about, that, I like the concept of that. The challenge I have with that, Philip, is I go out and I put it down and I go, well, that's about 10 inches of grass. And then I go over to the next spot and I go, yeah, it looks about like 10 inches, right? After I make my first measurement and spend some time, my next measurements are all kind of based on that anchor point. <laughs> to to yeah. me, maybe I'm doing and, it wrong, but then I could take 10 or 20 measurements and they're probably going to average out to about what I first measured. Oh, and then you can look at it too, that the depending on the grass and things like that, just because the height is different, the density of the grass um, in that, that area or the, the species is, is different, you know? So if you're thinking like native warm season grasses, they're, they grow really erect. And so um, height is probably a, a little bit better indicator of biomass than if you think about Bermuda grass, which grows very horizontally, um, you know, height is a really poor indicator of, of biomass if you're trying to go across species of forages. And so, um, it's the, the density, you know, how much, I'll say bare ground or, you know, you know, how many plants per square foot or something, you know, things like that. There's, there's a whole lot of factors that go into that. And so trying to measure it from a producer's perspective, in my mind, becomes really challenging and difficult. And so it, it's a lot easier and probably just about as good to evaluate the change over time and keep track of year to year differences and and gives you a ballpark of how you do how you should manage it um moving forward um, based on what it's done in the past yeah well what, what i hear you saying and I, i'm thinking about myself and how i would go about evaluating pastures and and i my brain kind of went to you know i know people that are better at animal husbandry than others and I think all of us can improve our animal husbandry skills, but there are people that are just really in tune to kind of the cattle whispers. They, they seem to be able to really be in tune to cattle handling, cattle behavior. And, and you know, they're really in tune to their, their body condition and things like that. So what I hear is there's kind of two things is there's the value of, you know, boots on the ground, being in your pastures, looking at your forage frequently. But that same person, because things change slowly, maybe I don't see them. So it's it's the value of both kind of that outside eyes coming in and looking at the pasture occasionally. Maybe somebody that really has that expertise, you know, they, they're really kind of better at plants than the average producer. And then the the daily pay attention to your grass. And and maybe, so I'm, I'm asking a question kind of maybe in a weird way, but is there value both in taking the time to actually watch your ground but then also ask somebody to come in and give you some fresh eyes once in a while probably i mean you, you think about just like you said when you look at something day in and day out it's hard to notice change um but you know some of the and and whether it's because they're seeing it frequently or or what but you know some of the the best uh, producers at managing their grass are, are some of these that are doing the highly intensive um, grazing management strategies because they're out there moving cattle every couple of days or even every day 
And so they're seeing the change in what's happening um, on the spot pretty frequently. And they're, they're out there looking at it every day. You know, how, how much grass do I need to give them for today? Um, and so that bec they become really in tune with it. So I think cer certainly something and we need to follow up more because I'm, I'm very interested in the, the concept of grazing monitoring because it's, it's easy to talk about, it's hard to implement. So we'll follow up on that in future podcasts. And I, and I think you're absolutely right, Philip. There's some tools out there, but even as scientists, we've struggled with how do we measure how much grass is out there? And it becomes really important when we think about nutrition, how long we can leave them out there. But I want to I want to switch gears and I want to get to because this is one of the most common questions that we hear both from producers and veterinarians and relative to and, and Brian, I'm going to direct this one towards you, because relative to diseases that we treat with antimicrobials and I'm going to use respiratory disease or pneumonia as an example, uh, we've identified a calf as ill. And we treat this calf with the, we've worked with our veterinarian, we've got our first treatment drug, we treat them with the, an antimicrobial and they don't seem to get better or how do I know when I should retreat that animal? Because I don't expect them to be better that night, but when should I retreat them? Yeah, I think, I think we have to use respiratory disease as the example, Brad, because it's really the only one where we have much evidence at all. And uh, <clears throat> duration of therapy is, for antibiotics is one of those things, even on the human side there where we probably don't know as much as we should. So, um, and this kind of falls that we're talking about a, a post-treatment interval, um, or it, it even applies to, to post-metaphylaxis interval, if you're familiar with those terms. So how long do I wait after I've given an antibiotic, whether it's for control of respiratory disease or treatment of respiratory disease until I should give another one? And there's a little bit, like I said, there's a little bit of research that's been done with respiratory disease for some of the longer acting antimicrobials that we have on the market now. Um, that that window falls somewhere in that five to seven days. Um, there, there's a few studies and they looked at variable times from, I think it was five days out to 14 days. And um, at some point, it becomes less about the... Uh, activity of the antibiotic and it becomes more about the psychology of who's watching the animals and and you know how, can I actually wait any bit any longer um, so you know my recommendation for most people is you know that five to seven day window um, that's generally enough time for them to respond um, the, the calf itself has enough time to respond to the disease it gives enough time for the antibiotic to work and at that point if you're not seeing what you think you should, um, it's, it's probably time to retreat that animal. But if I, if I look at him, so, so you're saying wait five to seven days and it depends on, and, and I'm going to qualify this conversation with work with your veterinarian, because there's some differences between the specific drug that you use. And there's some differences between the type of cattle and your situation. So we're going to talk in generalities. So I'll put that in sure. as a, a, a brief background. Ryan, I treat him today. I don't want to wait five days if two days later he looks terrible. Shouldn't yep. I jump in and retreat that individual? Yeah, and so you're right. That's where you work with your veterinarian. And and again, when you do these, we're talking about these treat these post-treatment intervals, right? It it we we kind of aim for the majority of cattle, 
But what we found is that they actually work best if you do leave a little leeway in there for, you know, a, a case that, you know, two days later you look at him and he's obviously worse than he was at the time of diagnosis. You know, there, there needs, there need to be, there needs to be room in your treatment protocols for those exceptions. Now, if the exceptions get to be 10, 15, 20% of your cattle, that's not an exception. That's, we need a different protocol. Um, but I do, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Work with veterinarians so that you've got some, some wiggle room in there to, to treat those exceptions. But as a general rule, um, across several of the classes of antibiotics we currently have, that five to seven day window actually looks pretty good from the research I've seen. So if you, if you think about those calves though, they're going through, especially with pneumonia, they're going through lots of changes in their lungs and it may just take them some time to recover. I like your point that you made there relative to, I'm going to go with a specific protocol, but then I'm also going to track the results because our eyes aren't good enough to distinguish if this calf, if the antimicrobials are doing their job and it's just taking time or if the antimicrobials are not working. So what you're saying is have some measure of, okay, how many calves did I follow the protocol on and how many did I have to make an exception for? Because it's darn hard to wait five days. Yeah, it is. And, and in, this, in the studies that I've seen, Brad, uh, what they found is that that treatment response rate actually got better if we waited a little bit longer, when I say a little bit longer within reason, so that seven, five to seven to 10 day window. So um, as opposed to a more immediate retreatment. Depending on the situation, it may be back to our very first conversation we had today related to stress, right? So if I have an animal that's sick and I treat him and then I put him back in his home and then two days later, I get him up to get a closer look at him and then I treat him or not. And then a day later I get him up. And I mean, every time I do that, I'm in, I'm causing some stress on already what would now be getting closer to a chronically stressed animal. What are your thoughts, Bob? Well, I think what I was thinking is it, it is important to talk about kind of what we're going to do with antibiotics, because, you know, we're talking about a bacterial disease that the antibiotics are going to help us help the animal get better sooner. But that's not our only treatment. You know, when you think about when you're sick, sometimes what we call just good nursing care. So a comfortable place to lay down, you know, plenty of access to water, uh, palatable feed, you know, so I, I kind of put myself in the calf's shoes. And once I've received the treatment, there's still more you can do to kind of help the healing process. And that's kind of back to that, some of that animal husbandry, just nursing care. And so there's lots of activity that the humans can do to help the situation besides just retreating them with an antibiotic. Because as Dr. Luber said, you know, maybe the antibiotic is on board and it's got a long action and it's doing its job. So there's two things. One, maybe what you're saying is, well, maybe one thing you could do is leave them alone. You know, and sometimes when I'm sick, that's what I want. Just leave me alone. But do kind of do the other things that you as a human can do, a caretaker can do to make sure that the animals are comfortable. Um, can because it's going to take time for them to completely heal. So what can I do to help that and and not hurt it? As you said, I could inadvertently kind of hurt that process if I'm not careful. Excellent. I've got a lot more questions on treatment and follow up on this, but we're out of time for today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to save some of those. And, and Brian, I'll ask you next time, because I think there's several other areas, because as we get into fall, we're, we're treating calves for different things. So it's worth some, some further discussion. 
I certainly appreciate you joining us today. And we always appreciate your, your feedback, your comments, your questions you'd like us to talk about. You can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Yeah.